Galatians 5, 16 through 26. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Well, thank you for those very uh, kind words. Um, very much appreciated. It's, uh, it's been an honor and uh, a privilege for us to serve here for 30 years. Golly, 30 years. And uh, it's hard, hard to believe. Um, the way I remember how it came about was, um, it was in 1989, I think it was probably around February of that year, Pat Coleman and Bud Toole came up to Detroit where we were living and I was pastor of a church there. They had got my name from a mutual friend, well, Jody Dillo. Some of you know uh, the name Jody Dillo. And Jody had been here in Jacksonville. And then he was up visiting with us at our home and our church talking about his ministry and such. And um, found out that, you know, the, the church here, the West Side Chapel here was uh, looking for a pastor. And so we had that connection. And then finally, Pat and Bud came up. Uh, to visit and, and get acquainted and, and, and things, listen to my preaching and that kind of stuff. So uh, picked him up at the airport and took him, it was on a Saturday, I think they came in, and uh, uh, took him to our home and, uh, and Cher prepared a beautiful dinner for them, as you know that she is very capable of doing. And, uh, and so we talked that evening and then they came to church the next day and, and so on. And... Uh, and then th this this is kind of how I kind of how I remember the the conversation. Something like um, Pat and Bud are talking. They say, "Well, what do you think?" And uh, and they said, "Well, we really like her, and and he's okay, but if we want her, we got to take him. So we'll invite him." <laughs> so thirty years, Pat. How about that? Huh? <laughs> Nineteen eighty nine. Uh, that you were up there. How about that? All right, let's get to the Word of God. Um, you may have heard about the prayer of the little girl. She kneels down beside her bed, and she places her hands together, 
and she bows her head and she closes her eyes and she prays dear God help all the bad people to be good and help all the good people to be nice well that little girl's prayer is not quite theologically accurate we might be more comfortable with something like Lord help all the bad people to get saved and then help all the saved people to be nice but her prayer does touch on a very important issue something so so blatant that even a, a child can pick up on it that those who are the so-called good people the, the people of God are not always the nice people they don't always manifest the character of Christ let's be perfectly honest none of us manifest the character of Christ as we should there's always a gap between our position in Christ and where we are in reality our righteousness in Christ and our experience in Christ there's always a gap so how do we close that gap to make our lives more in accord with the people who we are in Christ how, how, how do we close that gap well that's the issue that Paul's addressing in Galatians 5 he uses the terminology of flesh and spirit the flesh is our natural sinful ways the spirit is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and he says that it is only as we walk by the spirit that we can close that gap between the way we are naturally and the way God's people should live it's only by we only as we walk by the spirit that we can close that gap so today we're looking at a new kind of life actually it's part two in our passage last week which really began at verse 13 we went up through verse 18 we saw how we can live this new kind of life it is by walking by the Spirit but today Paul shows us in more detail what that new kind of life actually looks like we get a picture a portrait of what that new kind of life looks like so we might aspire by walking by the Spirit to be able to live that kind of life all right let's just review brief, review briefly what we saw last week what, what's the what's the name that we have given those people in the Galatian churches that want to impose the Jewish law what, what do we call them the Judaizers right okay they're imposing the Jewish law that was what they were doing in the churches in Galatia to whom Paul is writing and they had insisted that Christians must keep the law in order to live a righteous life without the law they said there's no moral restraint without the law there's no moral guidance you need the law otherwise it's you know anything goes but Paul is saying that's not true 
There is, he is saying, moral restraint. There is guidance. And not only that, there is power and enablement. But it doesn't come through the law. It comes through the Spirit of God working in us. And that's why Paul says, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. And this means to allow the Spirit of God to control every area of our lives. It means to yield control of our life to Him and His ways and allow the Spirit of God to control every area of our life. The Spirit of God brings to mind the truths of the Word of God and then directs us and guides us and prompts us to obey and follow and ha- so that the Word of God is being worked out in our lives. That's how this process of walking by the Spirit works. The Spirit gives us power and strength to obey the commands of God, a strength far beyond that what we would ever be able to do simply in our own strength or our own determination, grit our teeth, resolve. The Spirit of God gives us strength and power. And Paul says, but there's a battle within us. A battle is ongoing between the desires of the flesh, that's our natural sinful tendencies on the one hand, and then what the Spirit wants to do in us and through us on the other hand, and these two are constantly at war with one another. And so that's why we must have a desperate dependence upon the Spirit of God. A desperate dependence. We must cry out to Him for His help guidance and strength and that's how we begin to close that gap this is the way to a new kind of life the way to the way is to walk by the spirit all right now paul will show us our options as we come to verse 19 today paul's going to show us our options What does our life of the, what he refers to as the life of the flesh, what does it look like? Is this this what we want? Is, Is that the kind of life that we want? And then he contrasts that with the kind of life of what the Spirit of God can produce in us. He's showing us the contrast. He's giving us a picture of the kind of people that we should aspire to be. Let's, he begins first with the expression of our natural sinful self. He says, now, the deeds of the flesh are evident. You see, he has just said, <clears throat> the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. These are in opposition to one another. So, what, what, what does the flesh look like? Well, the deeds of the flesh, that's what he's talking about, are evident. He's, he's talked about that internal struggle between our flesh. Remember, our flesh refers to our natural, sinful tendencies. That, that just which comes natural to us because we're fallen human beings with a sinful nature. And so our flesh refers to our 
those natural, sinful tendencies. And now he says, the deeds of the flesh are evident. In other words, we're all too familiar with those. We know those too well. The New Living Translation says, the results of the flesh are very clear. They are obvious. And then he gives a representative list of 15 examples of how our sinful nature expresses itself in life situations. What does it look like? Well, it's a list of 15, but I've broken them down, and this is the way they seem to break out here, into four groupings. The first one is sexual impurity. The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, and sensuality. The God-given sexual desire is an amazing thing. Properly used and under the control of the Holy Spirit, it can be a powerful bond between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. But without that control, it can be one of the most destructive forces in human relationships. Just witness the sex industry today. Trafficking. Slavery. It's all for the illicit satisfaction of the sexual desire. And so more than anything, that desire needs to be under the control of the Holy Spirit. But apart from that control, it manifests itself, first of all, Paul says, in immorality. This refers to any sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. It includes, but is not limited to, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, bestiality, and prostitution. Any of those activities, and probably a, a list could go on, of the deviances of sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. And then he talks about impurity and sensuality. Both of these refer to the perversion of the gift of sex. Sex expressed in ways not intended by God. It is manifest in the removal of all restraint wanton and open and unashamed sexual perversion. Some words that are often used here are licentiousness and debauchery. And the Greco-Roman world at this time was, was a sexual cesspool. Wanton sexuality with no shame. And some would argue that our present generation is the closest to the debauchery of the first century than any other generation since that time. That we're the closest to that now of what was actually taking place in the first century. The next category 
of the deeds of the flesh, our sinful propensities that just work, them, work their way out apart from any control of the Holy Spirit is misplaced worship. It begins with idolatry. That is, giving idolatry is giving worship to something that is not God. Giving worship to something that is not God. Or we could say it this way. Giving to something other than God the place of God in our lives. Giving to something other than God the place of God in our lives. Giving something else the place of first importance is idolatry. Letting something else be our main goal or purpose in life. And we so easily do this because these other things are so tangible and they can satisfy our natural desires for whether it's security or achievement or recognition or accumulation or leisure, whatever they are, we, make, we put those as our main purpose in life. Besides that, they make no moral demands on us. Doug Moo in his commentary says, idolatry could be the fundamental sin that humans commit. Fundamental sin. And then Paul talks about sorcery. It's interesting that the, the Greek word for sorcery is pharmakia, from which we get our word pharmacy. And originally, pharmakia meant the dispensing of drugs for medicine. <laughs> Hence, pharmacy. Okay? But then, it, was, it came to be used of drugs in religion, known as witchcraft. And the bottom line of witchcraft was it was a way to control people. Witchcraft was a way to control people. And while drugs may not be used today, there certainly is much in organized religion today that is all about controlling people. There are controlling pastors, controlling churches. And it is simply a manifestation of the flesh. A third category of the deeds of the flesh. And this is where Paul really spends his time here. Because the Christian life is really all about relationships. And here he is showing how our flesh, our sinful tendencies can simply destroy and disrupt relationships. Our flesh can be toxic to relationships. And we must consider these in the context of all of our relationships. As we look over this list, think in terms of your relationships at church or in your family, your marriage, your friends, or at work. How do these things, are they manifest in your lives or in what, in what way? Okay, so he begins with enmities. This means hostility towards someone. 
considering someone a rival or even an enemy. A distrust. It means an adversarial kind of relationship. It's not hard to fall into that pattern with with someone for any number of reasons, but we find ourselves in a relationship of adversary. The second one is strife. This is discord and quarreling and contention. And it's an overt dissatisfaction with someone. The very opposite of harmony and peace. The third one is jealousy. Jealousy is resentment resentment when someone else is successful or is rewarded. Whether it's materially, with recognition, with promotion, or whatever it is, but there's resentment for their well-being, for their prospering. There's resentment for that. And then he has outbursts of anger. This is just what it says, explosive anger. It's usually when we don't get what we want or things don't go our way. It's a challenge to our agenda. This is all all too common. Explosive anger. Outbursts of anger. Disputes, the idea of this word, it, it... Really, the, the, the root idea is not conveyed what we normally think of a dispute, but th- the idea of the word is selfish ambition, self-seeking, a selfish devotion to one's own, one's own interests. And then we have dissensions and factions. And that's, those are feelings of animosity. And then a division, a split could be in a church. It could be in a relationship. Sometimes one person checks out of the relationship and leaves. Others times that person checks out emotionally. But it is the same manifestation of the flesh in either situation. The last one in this group here of toxic relationships is envying. So we already saw that in jealousy. Well, there's Similarity, overlap, but there's a little distinction here. Envying is a desire to have for ourselves what someone else has. Jealousy was, is resentment when someone else is rewarded. Envy is wanting it for ourselves. Final category of the expressions of our sinful nature are social excesses. The first one is drunkenness. Now, now the Greek word here literally means drunkenness. <laughs> In other words, it doesn't need a lot of explanation. It just needs to be heard and taken seriously. 
My observation, though, is that this is not an uncommon thing among Christians. But it is clearly here on what is called a sin list. In, in the ancient times, they had sin lists and virtue lists or um, vice lists and virtue lists and so on. And, 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 and you, know, you know, this is what Paul is doing here. It's a list of things that are a manifestation of our sin nature. And drunkenness is one of those. F.F. Bruce in his commentary says, Drunkenness is the more perilous because it weakens people's rational and moral control over their words and actions. It leads to all kinds of problems. All kinds of problems. The last last, uh, item is carousing. This is not getting in your car and just driving around. Maybe that's cruising, I don't know. But this refers to parties where drunkenness occurs. So you're just, you're just a part of it. Participating in those activities. Again, all too common for Christians today. Well, you say, well, Jesus hung out you know, with, the, with the sinners and, and, and such. Yeah, but he, did, he was there among them, but he didn't participate in what they were doing. That's the difference. And then Paul ends this list with this. And things like these. (laughs) I mean, he probably got tired of making his list of the desires of the flesh. And so he just gives a broad category and there's a whole lot of other things that could be added here as well. He shows 15 of them here. But it's never intended to be an exhaustive list as this is the only 15 things that the flesh manifests itself. But just compare it to other passages of Scripture in the New Testament. But it certainly does provide us with a picture of our tendency towards sin. Now, lest we think that this behavior is not a serious thing with God, lest we think that, well, because we're under grace, you know, uh, God approves of all that we do and these things don't really matter anymore, lest we think that Paul gives a warning about such behavior. And that's what he gives in verse 21b. Of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you. He says, I'm telling you now, just as I told you when I was with you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the warning. If you practice these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what is this warning? That if you practice these things or do these things, you won't go to heaven? This is how it is most often understood. That means if you do these things, number one, you either lose your salvation, or number two, it means you were never saved to begin with. And my question is this. Just how many of those things on that list 
Or to what extent or degree do you have to do them to show that you will not enter heaven? How many of them? Do you have to do all of them? Do you have to do all of them for a month or a year or five years? What is, how do you quantify that to say that, all right, that's too much, you can't enter heaven because of that? I think there's, a, there's another way to understand this. Let's be clear here. Paul is writing to believers here. Those who have the Holy Spirit. That's his whole premise here. That they have the Spirit. When they believed in Christ, they were given the Spirit of God. He doesn't doubt. He doesn't doubt that. He doesn't question that. He writes to them on the assumption that they do have the Holy Spirit and they are therefore saved. And so this warning to them is written to those whom he assumes are saved. They haven't lost it. Or it's not like they were never saved to begin with. Now, certainly, as in any church, some of them in reality may not have been saved, but he's not writing to them as if they may not be saved. That's not what this warning is about. So what's he talking about? What he is talking about here, inheriting the kingdom, is not entrance into the kingdom. That's not what he's talking about. But he's talking about reward in the kingdom. You see, the word inheritance is used in two different ways in Scripture. There is an inheritance that comes to all through faith in Christ. For example, just earlier in Galatians, in chapter 3, verse 29, Paul said, You belong to Christ, and you are Abraham's offspring, and you are heirs. You receive that inheritance, the inheritance of the promise. And so, we can call that our birth inheritance. But there is also an inheritance that is based on the faithfulness of our lives. Let me give you one example, Acts 20, 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you... Excuse me. Which is able to build you up to give you... The inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Who receives the inheritance here? Those who are built up through the word of grace. They are those that then will receive that inheritance. So there's an inheritance by virtue of salvation, our birth inheritance, and then there's an inheritance that is a reward for those who live faithfully for Christ. And so Paul's warning here in Galatians is not about the birth inheritance. It's about the reward inheritance. That if we simply continue to live our lives according to the desires and impulses of the flesh, 
then we will not receive the reward of our inheritance. We will miss out on our eternal reward. Well, Paul now shifts his focus to what the Spirit of God can do in our lives. If we walk by the Spirit, this is what the Spirit of God can produce. And so we look at the expression of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Spirit of God really has a twofold ministry as we walk by the Spirit. The first is to help us overcome what we just looked at, all those natural impulses of the flesh. The Spirit gives us the desire and the strength and the power to overcome them. So, so our lives are not controlled by those impulses of the flesh. But that's not enough. That's not all the Spirit does. It's not enough for us just to not do bad things. Okay? Not do those deeds of the flesh. It's not enough to just not do those. We must also do the positive good. And this is what Paul focuses on here. The fruit of the Spirit. And we have another list here of character qualities. This time, very much resembling the character of Jesus Christ. These are the character qualities that we must desire in our lives in which the Holy Spirit can produce in our lives. All right, let's look at the beginning of verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit. Now, this is intentionally in contrast to the deeds of the flesh. You've got the deeds of the flesh on one hand, and then you've got the fruit of the Spirit on the other hand. This is the character, the behavior, on the one hand, that the flesh produces, and now Paul is showing the character and the behavior that the Spirit produces. But there's a significant difference. And Notice the terminology that he uses. He talks about the deeds of the flesh. That is literally the works of the flesh. It's what we do in our own strength. But with the fruit of the Spirit, the emphasis upon, is upon what the Holy Spirit does as a result of His work in us. Think of the imagery of fruit itself. Okay, Fruit growing on a tree. How does fruit manifest itself? How does it come about? It comes about through what it receives from the branch to which it is attached. Okay? It receives that, those nutrients of the branch, and then as a result, it grows and blossoms into fruit. And so in the same way, these qualities that we're going to look at here are expressed outwardly in our lives as fruit through the Holy Spirit working in our lives. Now this doesn't mean that we're passive. We have nothing to do. We must seek His work. Remember, walking by the Spirit is a desperate dependence. But the result is not ultimately not what we do, but what the Spirit does. And so, the first fruit of the Spirit is love. This tops the list for a reason. Love. Because this 
is the preeminent Christian virtue. The idea of selflessly and sacrificially seeking the good of others. That's what love is. Selflessly and sacrificially seeking the good of others. Following the words of Jesus, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, Paul incorporates this into everywhere into, in his writings, incorporates it into the, the Christian life. He's already talked in Galatians about faith working through love and through love serve one another and love is the fulfillment of the law. He does this in all of his writings and in 1 Corinthians 13, that classic passage, he says, nothing we do means anything apart from love. Even if I give my possessions to feed the poor and I deliver my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. And the Spirit of God changes us from self-absorbed, self-seeking, self-fulfilling individuals into people who give of ourselves sacrificially for others. That's the fruit. That's what the Spirit of God can do in us. The second fruit is joy. This is really, joy is really an inner quality. Doug Moo says, it is that settled state of mind that arises from the sense of God's love for us produced by the Spirit and that exists, it exists even in the face of difficulties and trials. That's, that's this joy that we just have this inner joy because of what God has done for us and the knowledge of His presence with us and He is sovereign and in control of our lives. Joy is not the same thing as happiness. Happiness kind of depends on our immediate circumstances, but joy is bigger than that. It's that inner quality of joy. John MacArthur says this way, joy is the deep down sense of well-being. I like that. The deep down sense of well-being that abides in the heart of a person who knows all is well between himself and the Lord. It's that deep down sense of well-being. And Peter writes this. He says, In this greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Peter says you can have joy even though you're just being wiped out by all kinds of trials. You see, we don't naturally have this. We most often tend to complain to God, to others. But through the Spirit, we can have joy even in trials. It's a joy in the Lord. Joy in the Lord. The third quality is peace. coming most likely from the Jewish idea of shalom. The idea of peace is not so much the absence of challenges or strife, but a sense of wholeness in relationships. 
wholeness in relationships. And from this perspective, it would include forgiveness and reconciliation. No outstanding offenses. Peace. The next one is patience. We usually think of patience in the context of annoyances and frustrations. That may be part of it, but really it's much deeper than that. It is the endurance of wrongs without taking vengeance. The endurance of wrongs without taking vengeance. It's a refusal to retaliate. It is steadfastness in the midst of our personal trials. Patience. And then there's kindness. Golly, how do you, de- how do you describe a word like kindness? It's almost, it, it, just the word itself almost tells us what it is. But it's being considerate of others. Kindness is being considerate of others. Regardless of what you may be experiencing. Or regardless of the social station of the other person. Or regardless of how seemingly unimportant or insignificant something may be. Kindness is the opposite of I'm too important to be bothered by that person or such a small thing. Kindness is being considerate of others. And then we have goodness. It's that quality of doing good. (laughs) It's often associated with abundant generosity. And then faithfulness. Now certainly there's an aspect of being faithful to God, but in this context of relationships... Remember, Paul's talking about our relationships here. It would also mean being a faithful person in all relationships. Faithful to promises. Faithful to love. Faithful to encourage. You know, we often speak uh, with affection of a faithful friend. One who is with us regardless of what we experience. And then there's gentleness. This is the manner of relating to people without harshness. Without intimidation. Without accusation. It is listening without necessarily having to provide an answer. It's understanding. It is support. It is encouragement. Gentleness. And then the list concludes with self-control. As the last item in this list, it may be a summary kind of quality for our lives. 
In another place, Paul uses this word in reference to athletes. 1 Corinthians 9, he says, Everyone who competes in the games exercises this word, self-control in all things. So, that's the imagery of, of, of this word here. And, and, and think of the self-discipline of an athlete in training. Self-imposed limitations that he cannot do if he's going to excel. And a disciplined schedule of training to succeed. Self-control. The Spirit desires to produce that kind of self-control or godly discipline in our lives. And that's why Paul says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Self-control, discipline. And then he concludes with this, against such things there is no law. What do you mean by that? I mean, we wouldn't expect there to be a law against (laughs) these kind of virtues. What I think he means is that There is no law that can produce these things. Because that's the whole context of Galatians. It's not going to be the law that can produce these, what he has described here as the fruit of the Spirit. There's no law that can produce these things. The law is great at prohibiting things. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not. But all of the prohibitions cannot produce the qualities of Christ's likeness. So this is not an exhaustive list of virtues, but what a beautiful picture of godliness and Christ-likeness it is. Oh, that we might keep this portrait ever before our minds. Well, Paul wraps this up by reminding us of the foundation for this new kind of life that God has done to provide for us the potential for a new kind of life. Verse 24. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus, in other words, those who belong to Him by faith and trust in Him as their Savior, those who belong to Him, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. By virtue of our relationship to Him, that we belong to Him, through our faith and trust in Him, we now belong to Him. Our flesh, with its passions and desires, what we've looked at in, the, in, the, in that first list of things, the deeds of the flesh, our sinful nature, he says it has been crucified. It doesn't mean it's been eradicated. But it means that the power over it has been decisively broken. And things can be different now. Things can be different because of what Christ has done with respect to the power of sin over us. And therefore we can have a new potential for a new kind of life. Because those, our flesh with its passions and desires, the power over of that has been decisively broken. In verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. The idea is this, the Spirit of God has given us spiritual life. We live by the Spirit. If that is true, which of course indeed it is, let's walk by that same Spirit. 
But it's interesting here that the word walk that Paul uses here in verse 25 is entirely different from the word walk that he used in verse 16 where he says walk by the Spirit. Entirely different words, same, uh, same concept of course, but a, a, a little different emphasis. This word that he uses here means to live in accordance with. To live in accordance with. So we should be living according to the purposes and desires of the Spirit. So we live by the Spirit. Let's live according to the Spirit as well. Let's seek His presence and guidance and power to produce His life in our lives. To produce those qualities of the fruit of the Spirit. F.F. Bruce says this so well. I, I would not even attempt to try to summarize what he says. So I'm just going to, it's going to be up on the screen. I just want to read the way he describes this. Walking by the Spirit is the outward manifestation, the outward manifestation, not just something in us, but it's the outward manifestation in action and speech of living by the Spirit. In other words, we live by the Spirit, we have the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit is the outward manifestation of the Spirit indwelling in us. Living by the Spirit is the root. Walking by the Spirit is the fruit. And that fruit is nothing less than the practical reproduction of the character and therefore the conduct of Christ in the lives of His people. We live by the Spirit. Let us walk by the Spirit. And then finally, verse 26, let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. This reflects the situation currently in the Galatian churches to which Paul is writing, and he addresses this issue of all this infighting in the churches. But it also reflects any situation where the Holy Spirit is not working in the lives of people. Whether it's churches, marriages, families, friendships, all kinds of conflicts in all ways, in all relationships, they will develop if you're not walking by the Spirit. So, what difference does all this make? What should be the thrust of the Christian life does not get any clearer or any more direct than in this passage. We have two kinds of life set before us in this passage. Two kinds of life. The life characterized by our flesh, our sinful nature, and the life that is a result of the control of the Holy Spirit. Which one will it be? Which one will it be for you? Really, which one will it be? We sang earlier that, that, that song, Lover of my soul, I want to live for you. I want to live for you. Do we really mean that? We've got to make a choice. We either choose to walk by the Spirit or simply do nothing. And the deeds of the flesh will be manifest. Because they're the deeds of the flesh. <laughs> That's just the way we are. 
It's not like you choose to do the deeds of the flesh. But by not choosing to walk by the Spirit, by not choosing to pursue the work of the Spirit in your lives, that's essentially what you're doing. You're saying, okay, I'm just going to go with the flesh. I'll do as good as I can, but I'm not really going to pursue this Spirit thing. Think about it for a moment. Which do you want to characterize your life, your home, your friendships, our church? You want, you want it to be characterized by idolatry and enmities and strife and jealousy? Outbursts of anger? Just all kinds of fightings, disputes and dissensions? Envying, drunkenness, carousing? Is that what you want? Remember, choosing nothing means that you are choosing these. Or do you really want love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? Is this the kind of person you really want to be? Is this the kind of marriage and home that you want? Is this the kind of church that you want? Then you must choose to seek the power of the Holy Spirit. We must have that desperate dependence upon the Spirit. We must cry out to Him for His help, for His strength, for His power. Knowing our own weakness that we cannot, we cannot do this on our own. We cannot be the people that God wants us to be. And what we really desire to be, we can't do that on our own. We will fail in our own strength. And so we must cry out in prayer, Lord, help me. Change me. Give me strength. Change my heart. We must cry out in desperation for the Spirit of God to work in our hearts and change us. This must be our daily prayer. Our daily prayer. An hourly prayer when we face those situations where we know we're going to be, you know, the flesh just manifests itself. We've got to look to God in those moments to say, Holy Spirit, control me in this. Give me strength. Give me power to overcome what I feel rising up in me, in my flesh. You see, this is how we close that gap between who we ought to be and where we are. This is as practical as it gets. This is where our faith really impacts our lives and should make a difference, really make a difference. May God make it clear to our hearts. And I'll, see, I'll be so bold as to say, may our lives never be the same. May we never be the same. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let's live in accordance with the purposes and desires of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for your word that you've given to us, Lord. And 
earnestly pray that the Spirit of God of whom we have spoken today might do His work even now in our hearts. Of opening our minds to understand, of opening our hearts to receive the truth that you have for us, Lord. Holy God, we pray that we might see clearly our lives to the extent that they reflect our flesh and have a holy hatred of such things. That we might not want to live that way. And that you would give us a holy desire for Christ-likeness in every situation, every relationship. And may the Spirit of God abundantly produce His fruit in our lives. May this be our desire. And I want you to think for just a moment as you kind of do a scan of your life. Where are the areas that you struggle with? Could very well be most likely is one of those items or multiple items on that list of the deeds of the flesh or it could be something else that Paul didn't include in that list but you know could very well be on that list. What are the areas you struggle with? Would you just be willing to acknowledge that you don't like that in your life? You know that it's wrong. You know that it's not pleasing to God. And would you be so willing to just pray now that the Spirit of God would change your heart and change your behavior? In your own words, cry out to the Spirit of God that you don't want to be that way. You want to change. Cry out to the Spirit to do His work in your life. Lord, we pray that you might accomplish your will and your purposes among us. In great measure today, in Jesus' name, amen.